Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. This week, we welcome Chris McCabe and the poets Valgina Mort and Vaughan Rapatahana, poets working in Belarusian and Tereo, respectively. And later, Clive Bootle will be joining us in the studio to discuss whether it's even possible to save a language in danger of extinction. Chris McCabe is the head of the National Poetry Library, which has just published an anthology of poems written in endangered languages called Poems from the Edge of Extinction. He came to the studio with the Belarusian poet Valgina Mort and the New Zealander Vaughan Rapatahana to talk about dying languages. But, Sean, it wasn't just language that was at death's door. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, uh, I had just uh, had quite severe tonsillitis, uh, so my uh, voice is uh, very, very thin in this interview. But you're very, um, very brave. <laughs> um, but I, uh, it, I had to come in and talk to uh, these three because they're all so interesting and the project is so interesting. Um, so uh, I uh, started by asking Chris about why the National Poetry Library uh, launched their project. We launched the project because we were aware of the situation of languages around the world, how so many of them are falling silent. Linguists estimate that by the end of the century, half of the world's languages will fall silent. Uh, From our point of view, we wanted to encourage people to think about what happens with the poetry in those languages. Uh, it's mostly oral um, across the world. Um, And those languages... And what they contain in poetry is not known fully. So we have an idea in the West of what poetry is, uh, what it does. It's largely based on the page, the written word. Um, but we wanted to to hold on as much as we can to the poetry that exists in those languages so we can start a discussion about, about the broader aspects of poetry, but also so people in the future can um, have a sense of what poetry did in those languages. Yeah, and so then over the last couple of years, in terms of the public response to that, because it was a call out asking people to make submissions, and you said uh, a couple of years ago that you expected you would receive a lot in Gaelic Cornish, Manx English, and nearby European languages, uh, Breton maybe, or Basque. What has been the uh, the response? Wow, that I was pretty prescient because we, we did receive um, poems in, in pretty much all of those languages. Um, one of the most exciting responses was in um, the Malay language, Kristang, um, which is a Creole language which um, has a elements of, of Portuguese in there um, and you know someone saw the call out on the other side of, of the world and, and sent us a poem in that language. And so how many uh, examples that did you get from languages that uh, you mentioned before about that distinction between spoken language and written language? Um, did you get many submissions from examples of languages that are primarily 
spoken and not recorded anymore. We did receive some less than in written form. And I think, you know, we've got to be realistic about the assumptions we make about the kind of technology that people have access to around the world. Even the assumption that people would have the internet and be able to read, um, you know, the call out and then be able to, you know, to upload a recording. Um, you know, it's not it's not the case that, that people can do that. Um, but we did receive recordings of poems and we're really excited that um, we'll be able to play some of those recordings in the Rohingya language uh, documented by James Byrne and Shazar Dozier uh, at the South Bank so you know it, it, it's really about foregrounding the voices of those poets I think we've moved away from a, you know a period when you know it's okay for you know the white man to go and document and capture poems and tell other people's stories what we really want is you know to to be able where we can for for people to tell their own stories yeah and so now we've got this book the uh, the poems from the edge of extinction how did that come about in terms of getting in touch with poets and and asking them to take part yeah so it came about through a really uh, savvy editor uh, um uh, John Murray slash Chambers Publishing who had seen the call out and got really excited about the potential for a a poetry book you know it's like one of the most exciting responses was um, I really wanted a a poem in Petua which is the language of Macau, a place I've visited Um, and I was told that there were no poets writing in that language but an academic said well you should try this, this person Miguel Fernandez um, and he, he didn't get response for a while. I emailed him on uh, through Facebook, contacted through Facebook. Um, but it was wonderful to get his response, which was, um, I believe I am the last poet writing in this language. Yeah. How can I help you? Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's moments like that that have just made it such an exciting project to work on. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Well, um, Valgina, you, you've got a poem in this in this anthology. Um, would you mind uh, reading us a poem now? Um, you're going to read it in English and in Belarusian. Yes. I'm going to read you a different poem, a shorter one. Uh, let me read it first in English and then in Belarusian so you can pretend that you already understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's called Little Song for a Pocket Knife. And uh, it's uh, historical context is the 1930s um, and uh, lots of people from Belarus are sent into labor camps by the, by Stalin's regime. So they're taking trains to the north. Maria Abramovich, your two braids a railroad on your chest. A train runs up and down your braids Your grandson plays a string quartet with a pocket knife on the window glass. Outside, ever-red pines. The train claps, 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 claps. Maria Abramovich, mouth at shoulder length. Maria Abramovich, are they braids or truck tracks? Maria Abramovich bakes grey bread. A moon rib lies on the kitchen table. Maria Abramovich, make yourself a tiny Eve to ease your nights, to make chickens laugh. Um, I should probably explain that Eve here is not evening, right, but the biblical Eve. 
the kind of the progenitor, the female, great female ancestor. And um, Maria Abramovic is the oldest um, female relative that I know of. So she's my personal Eve. You'll hear that in Belarusian, uh, her name is not uh, Maria Abramovic, but Maria Petrovna, because we use patronymics. Um, and that would be uh, a more natural way to address her. Maria Petrovna, ваши косы прокладенные, як рельсы праз груди. По гэтых косах едуць цягнікі. Ваш внук грае скрипічны концерт кішэнным ножыкам на цягніковым вакне. За вакном вечна чырвоныя сосны. Цягнік нему кажа, яшчэ, 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 яшчэ. Марэя Петроўна, рот на шырыні плячэй. Марэя Петроўна, гэта косы ці чорных шынаў сляды. Марэя Петроўна пячэ шэры хлеб. Месячнае рабро лягло на кухонны стол. Зляпіце сабе, Марэя Петроўна, маленькую еву. Вам на радасць курам на смех. Thank you so much. It's so interesting hearing you read both and hearing uh, things like claps, 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 and then yeshe, yeshe, yeshe. It does. <laughs> I, I sort of. It feels actually like it works in both languages. That 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 sort of image that you're conjuring, conjuring of a train. Yeah. Thank you. The thank you. That was I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing that it works in both. But mm-hmm. is that is that very common for you in terms of writing in both languages that you feel like you can achieve everything you want to achieve in both? Languages. You know, Sean, it would be very controversial to say so, but I'm going to go for it. Do it. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it works every time. I found that in my experience of writing in two languages, nothing is untranslatable. And uh, if you approach it with uh, a mind free of any burden or restriction, everything can be translated. How do you sort of view your relationship with, with the Belarusian language? Is it is it very emotional for you? Is it a, a language spoken in your family? Uh, no. I grew up in a Russian-speaking family, which is very common for uh, somebody like me, born in um, 1981 in the Soviet Union, in a small provincial republic <laughs> in the Soviet Union. I studi- studied the Belarusian language in school, um, and... Uh, but it never occurred to me to write in the Russian language, which is my first language. But I don't quite think of it as my mother tongue. By now, I am, um, you know, a misplaced person who s- lives between several languages mm-hmm. because I teach in the United States, so I use English daily. With my family, I use, um, with my family in Minsk, I use Russian. But then there is a large Belarusian-speaking community with whom I speak Belarusian, and none of these languages I know really well. So I'm very aware of it. Um, but uh, luckily, uh, I um, very strongly hang on to the, to the idea that poetry does not come from language, right? but rather from the unsayable, from the untranslatable that we always fail to translate and to say. And it only makes then sense for me that I'm trying to say it in a language in any of the in any language in which I know I would fail ultimately, because it's so um, imperfect. 
Well, Vaughan, I have to bring you in now. Um, so Vaughan writes in Tereo, which is the uh, it's the primary language spoken in the Maori population in New Zealand. Is that right? It would be nice to say that, but no, it's uh, too many Maori don't know Te Reo Maori because it was literally suppressed and deliberately suppressed by our colonial overbearers who actually originally came from these fair isles. And there was a evisceration process set in place during the 1800s where te, not only te rao, but Māori per se were eviscerated. So the language almost died out. So when I went to school last century, because I'm a very old man now, uh, te reo Māori wasn't even available. We had to stand up in assembly, and this is a South Auckland school full of primarily Polynesian students, Māori, or from Pacific nations, and we had to stand up and sing God Save the Queen, which we found most bizarre when we looked around at each other because we couldn't quite see the relevance of the Queen to our populace. So it wasn't until 1987 that Māori, Te Reo Māori actually became an official language of, of our fair isles. So unfortunately, especially many urban Māori, and they went to cities to gain employment because they were basically bastated from the country areas where they grew up, lost the, lost the language. And it's slowly coming back in. But it's not a majority language. And so in terms of your own relationship with the language, um, it, it wasn't spoken in your household at all? A little, but I always had empathy for, th- for, for the tongue. And I just picked it up, practiced it, used it on a diurnal basis, had some good mentors. Uh, these were Māori from rural areas where it was spoken in the few isolated spots in the North Island of New Zealand. And became proficient in it. So now I would say it's my equal first language. But I d- a bit like our friend from Belarusia, I, I don't just speak English and Māori because my wife is from Philippines, whose first language is Kapampangan and then Tagalog, so I speak that fluently. My stepchildren are from Hong Kong, their first language is Cantonese, so I have to speak that fluently. I spent several years in Brunei, Jerusalem last century, again showing my age, and I speak Bahasa Malay, uh, which is similar to both Māori and Tagalog because we're all um, via our DNA inter, inter, interrelated, stemming from the matriarchal side in, in Taiwan of all places. So the languages share a lot of similarity of vowel pronunciation, and actual words which are identical. So now I speak many languages. And it's a case, again, of the situation where I'm at and what else is being spoken. And it's a good, a good way to be. Yeah. I think I'm very lucky. And people always say that, you know, learn, you learn another language, you learn a new way of thinking. Of course, because words encapsulate culture. Well, let's, let's hear a poem from you. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the reverse. I'll read it in, uh, in Māori, then I'll translate it. Tahi kupu anake, ki he ao ki nui na kaitorangupu porangi, ki he ao ki nui te tangata rāwakori, ki he ao whakamahana o te ao, ko tumanako te kupu. Ki he ao ki nui na pākanga, ki he ao o whakakonuka ma apo, Ki e au ki te mate amoa o na kararehe, ko tumanako te kupu. Ko tumanako te kupu anake, ko tumanako te kupu, ko tumanako. Ka huri ahau ki te reo ingirihi, I will turn to the English language. The title is Only One Word. In a world of many mad politicians, in a world of many destitute people, in a world of global warming, hope is the word. In a world of many wars, In a world of corruption and greed, in a world of the extinction of animals, hope 
is the word. Hope is the only word. Hope is the word. Hope. Well, I actually did want to ask both of you, and please feel free to jump in, about your relationship specifically with the English language. Because obviously for a lot of people, and a lot of uh, people that write in, who are translated into English, for some of them it can be that they their relationship with English is the the coloniser that well, well, is it, a it colonial is, language. But it's it's it's, it's uh, Tove's husband Robert Phillipson wrote about um, linguistic imperialism. It's it's going on. It's neo imperialism, and too many countries now. And I speak from experiences. I taught in them because I've taught in many countries, and I was an agent of the Hydra. There's even a further irony, uh, incorporating English teaching as a second or foreign language to students who will never use the language, including my own stepchildren, and spending billions of dollars on bringing over native-speaking English teachers to go to those countries on good pay, huge gratuities, well-paid return affairs to teach a language that isn't really needed for the majority of the populace. So Britain here is doing damn well. It's bringing in billions to your coffers. But the unfortunate side is indigenous tongues are dying out. Yes, at an amazing rate. Like when we said at the start that it's it's one every one to two weeks, basically. Um, how about you, Valgina? What's your relationship with English? Because obviously you, you live outside of Belarus now. Um, yeah, but I do return to Belarus often and publish there. Um, and uh, of course, I understand that we have to be very careful and suspicious of English and its colonial past and present and its imperial past and present. Um, but um, for me, uh, my complicated relationship is with Russian, uh, another imperial language. The Russian Empire um, closed Belarusian schools and burned Belarusian books, and education, right, was always used, um, uh, is what always justified uh, the colonialism, the linguistic colonialism and linguistic genocide. So uh, we used to be mainly a rural country with um, Belarusians spoken by uh, in rural areas, and to, for a child from a peasant family to go to school meant to learn Russian, right? That was the schooling. If you did not speak Russian, then you were uneducated. But in the cities, uh, there there is a generation of young people who never lived in the Soviet Union, unlike me. So they never they were born already in the independent Belarus, and uh, they their relationship with Belarusian is already different. They they um, understand that it's not just the language of the uneducated country people, right? It doesn't have to be derogatory, but it has become kind of the language of hipsters now, right? <laughs> So it became cool to speak Belarusian mm. because you became woke, you know. Right, if you see. speak this language, you understand that you are not a colonial subject. Um, but Russian is still associated with power, with um, any kind of um, social um, leverage, um, uh, that you might have in your career, right? Um, uh, everything is in Russian language. With Vaughan, I mean, has there been any sea change in terms of Maori? Because obviously from over here in the UK, we do see occasionally examples of New Zealand politicians, uh, white politicians speaking Maori language at public events. I'm thinking of Jacinda Ardern, maybe, mainly. Um, is that 
for you, is that sort of any sign of any positive change? Well, or is I, it a little I, bit I, too I think late? so, and, and indubitably, compared to what I said when I went to school well before my esteemed friend <laughs> last century with Te Reo Māori wasn't spoken people actually were castigated and legislated against for saying kia ora I remember a case I think in the early 1980s a Māori wahini a, a, a Māori lady said kia ora on the telephone operators and was castigated I think she almost lost her employment for even saying two words in Te Reo Māori which literally mean be well and hello when she answered somebody's phone call a sea change from that situation of course as I said it is an official language of the country it is obliged to be available in courts and other jurisdictions it it has grown to a degree but there's still a program against Te Rao Māori from too many people who are ignorant of its legal and epistemological and ontological st- stature the authentic existential stature of Te Rao Māori so there's still a long way to go. So it's a sea change, but it needs to be a much more seismic sea change, which sort of reaches a, a, a stasis, a stage of stasis right now. The, the number of people who, who, who claim to be uh, fluent Te Reo Māori speakers hasn't really grown massively in the last few years. It went up quickly in the 1970s, 1980s, into the 1990s with the advent of Te Kohangareo, which had language nest for children under the age of five, and it grew prolifically, but it's plateaued now. So my answer is, in Cantonese, mamate. It's about 50-50, you know, it's, it's so-so. But yes, there's much more awareness, and it is good that politicians are, 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 are utilising it. it. There's still that backlash of generally older generation Pākehā people who say, what are we having this stupid language for we don't need it, no one will use it, which is ignorance. Yeah, yeah, I would like to chime in on that. Please. Because the, um, it's not just, um, right, our government that resists funding any kind of Belarusian language endeavor, but it's us, right? It's it's the people who display great, great ignorance, um, the kind of aggression that Belarusian language often faces from uh, people um, it's it's abnormal because it's a language, right? It does not endanger you in any kind of way. <laughs> it cannot be violent or aggressive towards anybody. But the whole the the very idea of it um, provokes uh, or or brings out great aggression in people, and that kind of aggression. When I see that kind of hate, when I see it, I know that it can only be self-hate, right? That there's no other reason to react like that to the idea of language. Uh, And that self-hate comes from that great historical colonial trauma. To accept Belarusian, not even to speak it, but just not not to show hate towards it, would be to acknowledge those traumas, um, and um, and there is, but the self hate is really strong. Mm-hmm. The that kind of double consciousness of our people is really strong, and um, yeah, it will take I think many generations to turn that around. As I guess a point to end on. I mean, a lot of people listening, a lot of our listeners are in the UK, and we know in the UK that there is a 
basically institutionalised resistance to learning other languages. What can people be doing in terms of changing this, in terms of urging this this attitude shift? Because we're talking about this in terms of shame and guilt. Um, is there something that ordinary people can be doing in terms of helping preserve these languages? And Well, c- c- can I speak to your point? Te Reo Māori still is not compulsory in New Zealand schools. This is, and this is nearly 2020, and we have a Labour government who are empathetic towards that process, but it still hasn't happened. Too many people in New Zealand don't know enough about what happened. So what can people do? Well, don't feel shame and hate. Just educate yourself. There's books out there. It's really up to you, if you're listening, make the effort. Speak a couple of words of Te Reo or whatever endangered language every day. Um, learning language is facing the past. Uh, it's, um, it's the excavation of meaning and a kind of the, an experience of walking, walking through it. People think of language as something practical, as you were saying, why should I learn it? Um, I don't need it. Uh, as if there was only practicality to language. And b- because what, for me, what multiplicity of languages means, is n- it's not about practicality. It's not about being able to, or f- to buy a coffee when you are in a foreign country. It's rather about understanding um, who we are and what our meaning is. It's also a creative tool of digging inside yourself and understanding oneself. And usually an exposure to another language challenges you um, and, and, and makes you so aware of how imperfect your own language is, how arbitrary and imperfect and not enough to know yourself, to truly know yourself. Chris McCabe's Poems from the Edge of Extinction is published by Hachette in the UK and Chambers in the US. After the break, Clive Bootle joins us to discuss whether languages really can be rescued from oblivion. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. With us in the studio is Clive Bootle, who's a publisher on a mission to help preserve minority languages. Claire, you bumped into Clive recently because of a Livonian poet. Where, where even is Livonia? <laughs> We're talking about uh, Valtz Ernstreich, who I, I, I've become a bit of a fan of, actually. He's a bit of a rock star, although a, a rock star among a population of 20. <laughs> 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 is that not about the population of Livonia? Uh, well, it's that's the number of people that speak Livonian. But, but um, where, where is Livonian? Uh, it's uh, on the Baltic coast of uh, Latvia, 
Um, so it's a, an area that's been depopulated through um, Soviet um, Sovietization, um, and traditionally is the, the homeland of the Livonian language, down uh, to twenty people. But um, Valtz is it's a, it's an area that spans several cultures and several countries, isn't it? So so Valtz um, taught at the university, or got his degree from an Estonian university. Yeah. Now has set up a Livonian institute in a, in, Reg- in the, the University of Latvia. But but Livonian is a Finnic language, so it doesn't actually relate to Latvian at all. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Uh, it, it is um, um, associated with uh, with Estonian, which is which is across the Baltic, so that the uh, migration and the language must have developed, I'm not a linguist, but assumed to have developed um, from Estonia rather than from Latvia. So this book, which I, I you, you see, I, I have a copy of it, mm. although uh, since I have been holding it close to me since the spring when we met at this session, yeah. this European Literature Night at, at the British Library. People like us, um, it's beautiful, beautifully produced um, with Thank parallel you. texts, yes. and this is your publishing philo- philosophy. You always do them in parallel texts, yes, which sometimes results in extremely fat books, which don't get through my letterbox. So I have to go and collect them <laughs> from the post office. Oh, I never really. Oh, sorry, I didn't. I hadn't thought about that. The, the, the anthologies that I do, I, I've done ten um, major anthologies of minoritized languages, um, and they're not parallel. They, the, the translations follow the original texts, but they are. They, they do include. They are bilingual. And the, the strange thing about this this Livonian book is that it, when I read it, I it was a sort of bit of this this conceptual moment when I thought, actually, for Latvians, they're more likely to understand it from the English than they are from the Livonian, yes. even though so so I. I the English language is acting as a bridge from one part of Latvia to another part of Latvia. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's probably very true that's very true although I, I suspect that a lot of Latvians do actually speak Finnic uh, languages as well. Is uh, that how you see what you're doing though as a kind of way of making bridges? Yes absolutely yeah I, I think it's a, it's a, my contribution I suppose to um, cultural diversity um, and for, for many for many people um, artists that I've tr- uh, had uh, produced their uh, books in translation it is a, a kind of calling card um, for them if they go to a, um, a, a f- book festival poetry festival in Indonesia or North Africa then they can present the English which is likely to be understood in in those communities rather than in Livonian which of course is not so interesting that this is relates to what Olga Tokarczyk said after she won the uh, after she won the Nobel well she actually said it to me before she won the Nobel, which is that that you you know that actually being published in English is a world event. That's the point at which a writer becomes global, even for somebody like her. So she so her arrival, it, her her, the, her win of the book of Man Booker International yeah. last year was what put her on the international stage. Yes. So what you're doing is putting people on an international stage, even if that means taking them back to themselves. Absolutely, yes. That, that, that's exactly what it is, and, and uh, um, it means that people can then uh, take their poetry to other other cultures, book festivals, or, as I say, all all over the world. Yes, it's it's it, it is. I mean, it's, it's a kind of strange idea, really, that the very language which is, uh, in a way, destroying minority cultures is the one that's also giving life to them. But they're bridges to places that are almost inaccessible normally. 
Yes, uh, they are, and 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 people are very appreciative of the of the fact that they want their books in into in, in English. Of course, they do. So, uh, so, how do you go about finding those languages, finding the poets to work with? Uh, well, uh, in, in the case of uh, the Livonian, I was uh, I I did I do some networking at the London Book Fair, and I came across the Baltic states. Um, stand. Was that how you discovered him? So yeah. only very recently. You seem uh, like old friends. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've been to Cornwall together. I yeah, suppose. Yeah, Cornwall. <laughs> Cornwall being, I have to point out, Cornwall, be, you have four, 34 books relating to Cornwall, <laughs> including in Cornish, yes. Yeah, it was, I, I, I find that um, my, often minority languages, other, other minority languages are well received in Cornwall. And I think probably um, many of the languages that, I, uh, that uh, are more familiar in um, Edinburgh or uh, Cardiff or Truro than they are in, than in London. Yeah, because people get the idea of a minoritized language because they have them next door. But this is but the the Livonians were also a seafaring people, and I I was really struck by the similarity between Singh's the work of Singh. It's sort of a work of lament, a work of uh, um, and of people going off to sea, of people being owning an ancient people being embedded in a land that is a coastal land as well. Yes, I I mean I think that the. the, the way I read um, Waltz's poetry is, is, is a, it's, a, it's the poetry of replacement, is that is very much a culture that existed. It, there's a poem, I forget which one it is, there is a, there is a city beneath a city. Um, the idea that, that, that Livonian, which was, a, which was a vast culture, actually took in most of, um, much of Latvia, including Riga, was replaced by, by Latvian. Um, so it's it's it is a it is a, a, a poetry of replacement. Reimagining um, cultural connections is actually very is, is is very exciting. I think, and, and there are people who are doing that. You know, particularly in Scotland. Just before we broaden it out a little bit, there's one he writes haikus. It's one of the things the forms he writes in three <laughs> three line poets. And this this one, I was very taken with this one. Very short. Um, His swords lay your breath on them, and only rust will answer. We sort of yeah. it's sort of. Quite haunting and, it is really haunting and very simple, but quite profound. Yeah, 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 yes. In the interview earlier, Valgina talked about uh, aggression towards her language, uh, Belarusian. Do you, do you find that European states are keen to support their minority languages? Have you encountered any sort of antagonism to the work that you do? Uh, in some cases, yes. I mean, it really varies. I mean, the Latvian literature... Uh, people have been extremely supportive of Livonian. Um, they they see it, they treasure they treasure the the, the Livonian. Uh, obviously, there are in in, in places where where languages are, are more contested, I mean, such as Catalan. Well, obviously, Catalan is the is the big example, which is um, you know historically has uh, Galician also. In fact, the Spanish uh, the languages of the Iberian Peninsula are I think very strongly contested um, by the centralized um, Spanish state. Um, in, 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 once you, if you go to Catalonia, everybody speaks Catalan. Mm. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's it. I mean, and there are 10 million people speak Catalan. So that is a very successful minority language. Yes, it is. is. Yeah, I mean, it has some claims to not being a minority language, really. But it is a, it is a, it's not the state language. Um, so, yes, it, I mean, I say 10 million people, that's, prob- that's more than speak any Scandinavian language. Mm. I mean, a lot of people think that endangered languages are something that happen remotely, and of course that, that is true, but there are many languages in Europe which are endangered, and indeed there are languages in the British Isles which are 
critically endangered. Manx, for example, with a maybe not a thousand speakers, Cornish the same. The, 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 the dialects or languages of the Channel Islands is probably not 500 people speak uh, speak them. Um, Serkie, the the, from Sark, I think there are 20 people that's, that speak it. So, you know, it's not just something that happens, um, you know, in the Far East or in the Amazon. Um, it's, it's actually on our doorstep. We mentioned Cornwall before. One mm-hmm. of your languages is Kernawek. Mm-hmm. I'd never even heard of Kernawek. This is terrible, and it's a language in my country. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it really. The whole my whole project began with um, with a, a, a manuscript which was given to me in the last century <laughs> um, of a collection of poetry in in Kernawek, uh, and obviously I re- read it in English, and I was kind of surprised by it myself. I didn't really I knew that there had been a language of Cornish. Um, but I didn't know that people still used it. You say there's like 20 people left speaking Livonian. Do you think the book you're publishing is going to change that, make 23, 25, 2000? Um, not directly, but I think it gives confidence to a culture. Um, that um, Recognition by a majority culture like English does give confidence to people that speak um, a minoritised Language. The Livonian Institute at, at in Latvia University only opened last year, 2018. That's right, yeah. So, so it's, this is a new, a very new movement, and part of the new movement is is making available the text both in the original and in translation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is a there is actually a folk house in in Livonia, which was built, I think, in the 1920s, designed by quite a, a well-known Finnish architect, I, I, I believe. And that's a sort of, I wouldn't say it was abandoned, but it's, you know, it was there in the 20s when there was a, when there was a, a culture, um, a, you know, a living Livonian culture. But that, of course, was destroyed really by, by, by um, Soviet security, which moved everybody away from the coast. And therefore people couldn't, you know, uh, engage in fishing, which is what they traditionally did. And you're working basically in European languages, aren't you? Yeah, I do European languages. How many, how many languages do you cover then? Oh, well, I, I suppose about, so far, about 20. And how, um, many, and how many are left? Oh, hundreds. So European languages? I, I, really, I do Europe, yes. Yeah. So, so t- hundreds of European languages yes. waiting for you to discover, with literatures attached to them, because this is yeah. the point as well. You have to find poets in those languages. Poets are very important. Then, uh, Yes, they are very important. I mean, poetry is, is very important to me, and it, it, it's a sort of, it, it conducts the, the culture. It's, it's the main to me, it's it's a very important vehicle for stabilising a culture to have a majority poet. Why? I don't know. There's something about poetry which which kind of um, which gets into the sort of in, into the DNA of a, of a culture. Is it um, also that a poem has to exist in a language in some sense? Ooh, yes, I suppose so. And so the language has to exist for that poem to be. I have what, what I call the bootle test of the viability of a language. Uh, the first is the first test is: Can you buy a packet of fags in that language? Uh, has the culture got 
a significant dedicated poet. That's two. There are three in Livonian. And th- the third, <laughs> the third test is: um, has the gruffalo been translated yeah. into that language? <laughs> and is it in Livonian? Not yet. <laughs> Only a matter of time. <laughs> but it probably is in Norman and uh, it is, Galicia. In fact, they've just launched. They've just launched a gruffalo for, in in Gerie, the language of of Jersey. Yeah. So what's next? Well, I'm hoping to um, uh, to produce a, a book of uh, three Latgalian poets. Latgalian is a is a language or a dialect um, from Latvia. You can find people like us by Valtz Enstrein or indeed any of the other books in the Lesser Used Languages of Europe series at francisbootle.co.uk. And that's all for this week. Next week, Alison Flood talks drugs, Mexico and Donald Trump with the legendary American crime author Don Winslow. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Esther Apokajeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>